You are listening to the Krika Lecture Series podcast, produced by the Center for Russia, East Europe, and Central Asia at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. This and other Krika podcasts are available on SoundCloud and iTunes. For more information about Krika's lecture series and public events, visit our website at krika.wisc.edu. Today, it's a great pleasure to introduce our speaker, who is uh, Natalia Zotovo. Natalia uh, is uh, an ABD from Ohio State University. She's published uh, a number of articles looking at experiences of migrants in uh, Russia today, a very important topic. So um, although she's still, she's in the PhD program in anthropology at Ohio State University, she is um, already uh, a long and distinguished uh, scholarly record to her name, probably enough to get her tenure in many yeah. departments. Uh, so, <laughs> <Three awards. laughs> uh, and, and as you can tell from what I've said already, from the title of her talk, she's particularly uh, an expert on um, uh, the experiences of migrants um, in in Russia um, today. She's going to talk uh, about uh, the reentry ban. Um, her title. Uh, I don't have a front of me, but some here though. Sorry. So, yeah. <laughs> Russian migration legislation, reentry bans, and their meaning for transnational Tajik migrants. And this is from your dissertation research, correct? Yeah. Okay. Uh, so please join me in giving a warm welcome to Natalia Zotova. And thank you for having me here. It's really a pleasure to be on this wonderful campus. And I'm so surprised to see that a lot of you guys are interested in the tiny, small Central Asian country <laughs> and how it is connected to Russia. So <laughs> that's wonderful. Um, what I'm going to talk about today is that how international migrants navigate their way in the legal space, basically, right? Um, and when they come to the country of destination, they must comply with various laws and regulations in order to maintain authorized status, which requires, as I will show, a lot of time, money, and energy from the part of migrants. Uh, there is cross-national scholarship on experiences of migrants in receiving countries in the United States, in Russia, elsewhere in the world, but still experiences of people, how they see their laws, how it affects them, it kind of remains a blind spot in anthropology, in social uh, research. So my goal here today is to kind of fill this blind spot a little bit and discuss what it means for Tajik migrants, what it means for them in their home countries. Right? Uh, and I will discuss the recent changes in migration laws and how they affect people in Tajikistan. So I'm, in doing so, I aim to build those transnational connections in research and in people's lived experiences. Um, to give you a little bit of a background and speak about significance, why you should care and why you should come here, uh, this is a bit background about Russia. So currently, Russia ho um, holds the third place in the world rank. Um, it shares the second and third place um, uh, with Germany. Uh, previously, Russia was the second receiving country in the world, which is surprising to think about because we usually think about the United States, which is the first receiving country in the world. And Russia used to be the second. And not a lot of people pay attention to that. Uh, but now with the economic downturn in Russia, um, like. Uh, the number of people coming to Russia, and also because of those recent changes in migration laws, the number of migrants declined, and so now Russia is in the third place. Uh, nearly half of all migrants come from Central Asian countries to Russia. 
from Uzbekistan, Tajikistan, Kyrgyzstan, and Kazakhstan. Um, Turkey, no migrants from Turkmenistan for the obvious reasons. Um, they have the visa agreements with Russia. And women make now the growing share of migrants, um, of Central Asian migrants who come to Russia. So when they come to Russia, people have to navigate their way in a foreign legal space. Um, and that space denies them, um, demands that they comply with specific laws, specific regulations that define their work opportunities, residence requirements, and documentary status. And it is pretty common, as we have shown in our research and papers, that migrants remain to this or that degree undocumented in Russia because it's a hassle. It's, it takes a lot of effort to maintain the documentary status, and I will show that, I want to show that in my presentation. However, notwithstanding any documents and even Russian passports, um, Central Asian migrants are collectively marginalized, they are othered, and they are discriminated against, both in public discourse, in media discourse, and everywhere, in the political discourse as well. Um, all right, so what's next? Um, I will talk about re-enter pens and very recent changes in migration laws. Uh, that happened at the end of 2015 and were implemented at the beginning of 2016. And so I will situate experiences of people, of Tajik migrants, men and women. I will speak about their gendered experiences in the context, I place the, uh, those in the context of recent developments in Russian migration practices and laws. Uh, now, Tajikistan, this small country that you guys are interested in, it is here. Pretty small one, uh, relatively small country in Central Asia, and this is Central Asia, like the broad part, uh, landlocked, a lot of mountains there. Um, it's hard to do agriculture, and there are structural concerns and problems in the economics. So there are lots of factors that come together and influence migration, out-migration, both international and internal in Tajikistan. Uh, this is the population, and GDP per capita is very small. It is $800 a year. But what struck me when I was getting ready for this presentation, because I had at hand the numbers for the previous year, for 2015, and it was 30% higher. Can you imagine that? In a single year, GDP per capita in Tajikistan fell 30%. Uh, this is because um, economics of Tajikistan is so closely connected to Russian economics. And now Russian economics has the structural problems because of sanctions, because of the aggressive policies in the world, and it has a lot of effect on Tajik migrants and other migrants as well. Um, this is a very poor country with the average monthly income of $120 their person, but people in the rural places make even less or no money at all. Tajikistan witnessed the growth of large international migration in the past 20 or 25 years since the collapse of the Soviet Union. It was initially fueled by regional instability and civil war as well, because people fled civil war, so there were refugees, there were internally displaced people, and a lot of people made their way, especially people from the Pamir, it is here, uh, to Russia and became Russian residents and citizens, and then other people followed, so that was a kind of complex process, how migration developed. Russia was and remains the, prim the primary destination, the destination of choice for Tajik migrants, 
But there is a growing migration flow to new places and to new countries. Um, among them are the United States, Canada, Persian Gulf countries, and China. So now I do research on patterns of migration to the United States, and it is growing, I'm telling you. So people are becoming cosmopolitan movers. And, yeah, they explore new opportunities and new destinations. Um, and Tajikistan, why it is significant again, it is the most remittance-dependent country in the world. And this developed over Brazilian connections to Russia, with Russia, through migration. Um, now, let us speak about laws. Um, when I was watching, because I did research on Central Asian migration to Russia for many years, and I was watching developments of new laws and regulations, and I should say, I would argue that there was no clear strategy, there was no clear vision of what the country want to be, what place it want to have in the world migration system. Um, and it is surprising because Russian laws usually lag behind the actual development of migration. So, um, but another surpri surprise is probably uh, that this is the post-Soviet space, and it is still about visa waivers. So people can move freely. We cannot say that those guys are illegal. We can't even use this term. They are undocumented to some extent, but they are here in, the, in Russia legally. Um, and that, those agreements work for all post-Soviet countries except for Turkmenistan, Georgia, and the Baltic states. But the Baltic states are in the European Union now, yeah, and Central Asia is mostly visa free agreements. But when those migration legislation and policies were being developed, there were a lot of competing discourses. And there was a lot of hypocrisy, I would say, in the public discourse, in the media, when migrants were called unwelcome aliens. You, you know that discourse, right? The threat to the Russian demography, culture, economics, whatsoever. At the same time, the same people, the same politicians, they had all those large businesses. They had all those large businesses in construction, in transportation, and all those businesses used migrants. Their work, their cheap labor to build those business empires. And there's a lot of xenophobia, and I would, I would call that the nationalist paradigm in migration policies in Russia. But it has been becoming more and more restrictive, and especially between the years of 2014 and 2016, when the number of arrests, the number of deportations rose significantly. Oh, okay. So, what I want to do now, I want to invite you to a thought experiment, because I don't want you, uh, like, to bore you to death with immunization of various laws and regulations, and we, you, you need to excuse me for doing that because I'm an anthropologist and we really emphasize participatory learning. So, okay, let's learn from this experiment. Um, these are my photographs taken in the field in 2010. So let us imagine you are those Tajik boys who grew up and they are now 18 or 19, right? And you grew up in this small household um, in a place, in a rural set, uh, setting which is some 200 miles outside of the country's capital, and uh, there is almost no jobs and like wage labor opportunities in this village, so people move outside. Migration is really high in this place. 
Um, and then this boy grew up, and suddenly an uncle called from Moscow, imagine this long distance call, saying that he invites this boy, this young man now, to come and work and maybe live with him in Moscow, because, and he promised to help a little bit with finding a job and accommodation, stuff like that. Because support from the extended family in Central Asia, Tajikistan, it's a real thing, and it works. As a young man, you are so young, inexperienced, and you have an earnest desire to live an honest life and comply with all laws and regulations in Moscow, right? To do everything to maintain documentary status. Now, you need to travel 200 miles to the country's capital and take a plane, a train, or a bus to Moscow. Um, well, the plane ticket costs, one-way plane ticket costs $250. And remember that that household in the rural place makes, I don't know, $50 a month at the very best, $100 a month. So this is a lot of money. Maybe your uncle helped you and sent money, or maybe you had to go to the neighbors and relatives and ask for money, right? Uh, the train and the bus is another option. It is cheaper, but you know, I travel this train and it takes from three to four days and it is so hard. And the bus is the same. Uh, the difference is that buses do not have restrooms at all. <laughs> they don't have bad bathrooms, so it's, it's even more complicated and difficult for people and it's really hot there. I didn't take a bus, no. <laughs> I took a train though. Uh, so uh, looking back at the geography of Central Asia, which is Kazakhstan, uh, from Tajikistan to get to Russia, uh, the train goes like that. So it first goes into Uzbekistan, then Turkmenistan, then Uzbekistan back, then Kazakhstan, and finally it enters Russia. So there are at least four international borders and each international border, there, is, there are police officers, customs officers, and it is checks, document checks, and everything, and um, personal like questioning and everything. So um, it is eight times. Four borders means eight checks, and it is really discriminating, and this is experience of harassment as well, but especially when the train goes to Russia, because it starts at the border, right? This experience starts at the border. But Kazakh guys are sometimes no better. That's what people say, not me. <laughs> uh, yeah, so it's really hard. But finally, imagine you have arrived in Moscow. So what do you need to do next? <coughs> All right, so there, there would be a huge list of points. <laughs> be prepared. So first, you need to get a migration card, which is called a migration card, at the port of entry. Maybe you were lucky and your neighbor on a train, on a plane, or on a bus explained you everything. Don't you dare make a mistake. It won't be corrected. You need to state purpose of visit as work. Otherwise, it, it will be worthless. All right, so now your uncle met you at the train station and now you need to find a place to live. Okay, you, you can live with your uncle. But you need to get that so-called residence registration in 15 days upon arrival. For Tajik guys, it is 15 days. For Uzbek guys, it is seven days. Um, and this is another barrier. Because the real estate market and the market of rent is racialized in Russia. You probably know that a lot of people smile. So it is nearly impossible for 
a Central Asian guy, a Tajik who is speaking almost no Russian, and he has no experience and no, knows no one in the capital to get that registration. Because landlords, they just won't let him do that. They won't agree. Because to, do, to get this card, you need to have a landlord who agrees to go and do this paperwork for you. But imagine your uncle helped, because he already has this apartment. OK, this is done. Now you have one month to get the so-called patent. Patent is a work authorization, work permit. And this is everything now in Russia. Um, that's a major document. So to get a patent, you need to do this, <laughs> this huge list of things. And this is crazy to think about. First, this is a medical exam, and it is everything. It's about tuberculosis, it's about HIV, it's about screening, and a lot of things, and a lot of questionings. And then you have to take an exam. Just imagine that. To work at a construction site or somewhere else, you need to take a test. Believe me, people, I worked at the university cafeteria in my first year at the Ohio State, and nobody asked me to take an English exam and answer all questions about American presidents and American legislation to serve burgers. Nobody did that. Why? <laughs> but now people have to take an exam, and this is a real um, recent development, and it consists of three modules. Russian language, I don't know how our 18-year-old Tajik would do that. He knows almost no Russian. Then it's a history of Russia, history of Tsars, history of the 20th century, and Russian laws. This is a task to serve burgers, work, work in a cafe or construction site. All right, then you have to get a medical insurance for a period of stay in Russia and pay for that, pay fees, get your passport translated and notary, notary translation of the passport, get fingerprinted as well, criminalization of people, right? Um, fill in an application and get a photo. So the overall expenses would be $250, and if you pay intermediary, intermediaries to, for expedited processing, it would be even more. Now, how can you do that? There is a only place in Moscow now where you can do that. And the authorities say, it's a huge investment. It's a huge development. We built that so-called multifunctional center, multifunctional Center. I can hardly say that in Russian <laughs> and in English as well, but still. It is 35 miles from Moscow, and it's a huge trouble. Because you can only do all those things in this center. So now imagine yourself in Moscow, it's so cold, those guys who have been there. It's a winter morning, it's so dark. And to get to this center, you need to take a bus somewhere from the south of Moscow and travel 35 miles. But the trick is here that your uncle has a job. He cannot drive you there. Imagine he has a car. But he gets you, you, you wake up at 3 AM. You need to get to that bus at 4 AM. I don't know how, but maybe your uncle drives you. And then we take a small bus, Marshutka, for those who speak in Russian. <laughs> I don't know the exact translation uh, in English. And you travel those 35 miles. But the trick is in this thing, that the center can, say, accept only 200 cases a, a day. So imagine you arrive there and you discover your, your number in the line is 207. That's it. You won't be accepted that day. You travel back. Then you travel again. 
Um, and sometimes it's hap it happens if you are, say, you're the first MLM, but when you get inside and you get some letters wrong on those forms, you will be turned around, you will be sent back. So you will have to travel and travel there again for several times and again get this experience of being in line. Now it, it looks better, but previously if you look at the photographs, they were like metal bars, iron bars, yeah. What agency is this under? The FMS is part of the MVD now, right? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So now there is no FMS, that's only MVD. So it's now MVD, yeah. So, okay. Yeah, it's kind of a government agency, it's called this center, but yeah. It's, so this is the MVD who does that, all those documents. They are now in charge of all migrants. Okay, so imagine you have submitted all paperwork, it is done, then you travel back to get the patent. This is the patent. A small card, work authorization, and now you have two months to find a job. Imagine your uncle helps you out again, but it is another trouble and pain to find a job. Then you need to sign a work agreement with the employer and work away, and then you, you renew the patent in 12 months, but it is easier. But my point here that I want to make, it's the overall expenses, because first you need to pay some um, $300. You have to have this money ready when you apply for a patent. And then you pay for the whole year. So that is some $1,000 a year. Just imagine that for a household from a rural Tajikistan who make $100 a month maybe, that's a huge amount of money. Um, and, oops, also it's about time. It's about sync, like you should synchronize everything. That was a point made by Madeline Reeves, if you read that paper, that um, she argued that people are out of sync because they have like their work schedules and everything in their life. And it requires a lot of time. It requires a lot of effort, travels, long lines, patience, experience of meeting, like officials and stuff like that. It's about bribes. If you even get all those documents, you have police encounters every day because it's about racial profiling in Moscow and other places. And when police meet you, they usually want money, <laughs> never mind what documents you have because they find mistakes anywhere right? and just ask for money. And yeah, it's a lot of thing. So it's, I think it's, my point here, it's really hard to be nice and honest and earnest that you guy who wants to be completely authorized. Okay, so I will stop here for a second. Any questions on that? Pretty clear. So you imagine that. Nice. <laughs> that, that's about anthropology. <laughs> I see it on your faces. <coughs> okay, so now about changing laws and regulations. Um, so there was a new law in Russia which was signed late in 2015 and implemented in 2016. Um, it denied re-entry to migrants who overstayed their legal entry to the country, who overstayed that time of 90 days. Um, and that law affected a lot of migrants and Tajik migrants as well. Uh, so there were some major reasons uh, and that is almost about anything for re-entry ban. First, you can overstay your time in the country because if you stay more than three months for no reason, you don't get work authorization, a patent, or temporary residence, you're out. 
then if you do unauthorized work, if you couldn't pay for that patent, if you don't have it, if you don't have a patent or a temporary residence, you're out. Uh, and then no residence registration. Imagine you didn't find a landlord, or it could be fake. There is a huge gray market here, of course, and a huge gray zone. And again, this is the reason to be on that stop list, the reason to be uh, to get that re-entry ban. Mm -hmm. And also, it could be any minor civil offense. Two cases in 12 months, and you're out. It's like a game. Three strikes, and you're out. Uh, it can be anything. It's called administrative neoprawonarushenia, for those who understand Russian. So that's a minor civil offense. It could be traffic violation. It could be speeding. It could be any ticket. It could be jaywalking. It could be like riding a public transit without a ticket. So it could be basically anything. So that's a lot of, that's really important. Well, uh, there is, uh, there are data showing that more than 300,000 Tajik people found themselves in those stop lists in that short period of time. That means that um, if we think, if we know that uh, like regular uh, travelers, regular movers, there, there is almost a million Tajik nationals in Russia. It can be more, it can be less, but it's something like that. It means that 20% of these people, or 30% of those people became immobile. They were banned from going to Russia and maintaining that transnational lifestyle that allowed them for providing for their families, that allowed them to to leave, that was their livelihood. Yeah. So I mean, that to me is an astonishing number, 300,000 mm -hmm. just in Tajiks alone. So I'm curious, can you say more about how this policy was implemented so from the so quote unquote effectively from the Russian government's perspective? I mean, did they already, did, is it automatic? Like when somebody gets a second speeding ticket, they run a search and they say, okay, you got one last month, so you're already, you know, they immediately haul them off and slap them? I mean, how how is it possible to issue yeah. 300,000 bans in uh, such a short time? It doesn't mean that 300,000 people are in detention centers. A lot of people learn about that when they try to buy a ticket. When they come to Tajikistan back mm -hmm. for some whatever reason, and then they try to buy a ticket to return, and uh -huh. here they are, they're on the list. Because now the public anxiety in Tajikistan is so high that there are a lot of, you can, you can check your status on Embedded site. There is a web base, online database. And a lot of travel agencies, because Tajik guys go to travel agencies to buy their plane tickets, and there are lots of them in Dushanbe and everywhere, uh, they can check your status for you. And you learn about that. And also, I heard a lot of stories one while doing my field work. Um, some people were detained, some people were stopped so by the police who look at their residential registration, or they, they said, you have no work permit, you have no patent. So they were detained and then deported. It can be a bazillion ways. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so follow up on that. So are they, this is just from routine interactions of like migrants with the law, which aren't necessarily yeah. routine, I mean, they're targeted, but mm -hmm. it, is it also from like workplace enforcement? Has that increased in Russia? It could be, yeah, it could be, because some, some people said that it's like raids on the workplace. Yeah. yeah. When uh, there are police raids and they come to construction sites and they can check any documents there. And uh, it depends on the, you know, it depends on the discourse and depends on the policies. Uh, in Russia, it is 
sometimes connected and linked to electoral cycles, mm -hmm. right? When um, that was before the new mayor was elected in Moscow, Sabanian, that was in 2013. There were lots of raids, there were lots, lots of detainments. There, there were stories about like migrant camps in Galyanova and everywhere. So it happens in some, sometimes it's synchronized with electoral and political cycles as well. So it depends on the purposes. Um, if police and migration officers want to do something, they can basically do anything, right? So it's a cat and the mouse game, I would say that. Yeah. yeah. Are the majority of the Tajik migrants only going to Russia for a couple months at a time and then they're following the circular pattern or what's the what's the layout? Um, I think a regular pattern is staying for a year or something and going traveling back home on vacation. It's like long distance work. And they have families in Tajikistan, but they usually spend most of their times in Russia. Okay. But now more and more people choose not to return out of fear of being banned from re-entry. And I guess in doing that, Russia in a sense follows the same pattern, which was here in place in the United States. And it was pretty famous. It's discussed in a lot of in large scholarship on migration um, when, um, when Bracero program was stopped in 1965, lots of people, there was a spike in Mexican migration because people just stayed, they didn't return because when you don't have legal pathways, you are in the gray zone, you find the ways, right? You find the ways to do something with the laws. Yeah, so there was a lag, I would say. Yeah, yeah. And one more question as well. Um, to what degree would you say people just don't stay undocumented in sort of the population that you're looking at? That they don't even bother going through all these steps because it's just not worth it? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, that's a very good question. I will come back here because I also thought about this question when I was preparing for the talk. This is the statistics from MVD site. 14 million registered entries in Russia in 2016. Of course, this is also tourism, re-entry, double check, double, like, double data sets, but still. And then I looked at the number of patents being issued in the same year. So the number of patents being issued was 1.5 million only. So can, you can imagine how big this gray zone is because that's a lot of like, trouble to get those patents. It's a lot of money. So I would say that at least half of all work migrants stay undocumented. And also what is interesting with that patent thing is that when it is issued in Moscow, you can only work in Moscow. You cannot travel the country. If it is issued in St. Petersburg, go there and don't do your work anywhere else, right? So it's another breach of migration laws if you work in some other, and there are so many regions in Russia, <laughs> if you travel somewhere because you follow the job, you can do that legally. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry. What if your employer just withdraws the contract? If you, have the, you have to have a work agreement to have a... You do, yeah. Can't they just, could they withdraw it and manipulate Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. A lot of employers don't sign those contracts. Why would they bother? It's easier not to sign. So you have those workers who are, you're in full control of them, right? It's your power, why would they sign that? Because if you sign the contract um, with a migrant, you have to register it. 
with migration authorities, you have to pay taxes, you have to do everything, right? Why would you bother? Imagine you are a business owner. Would you do that if you can, if you can opt not to? Maybe yes, maybe no, so it's a hard question, right? Okay, shall we go on? Uh, and now, okay, that was my introduction on the laws, and now ethnography. <laughs> so that was my research in Dushanbe, where I went to do background research and to see how the situation changes, uh, and I went to Dushanbe. Dushanbe is the country capital, and I had a good reason for doing that, because if I went back to that small rural place, I would see maybe a different pattern and different trajectory, so I expected to see like a combination of factors, trajectories, and strategies in Dushanbe, and I did. So that was like a good reasoning, I would say. Um, I won't stop here on the methods. I just want to show this small picture. Uh, this is a photograph showing global connections of Tajik migrants. Uh, it is a sign next to a travel agency. It's written in Cyrillic because Tajikistan speak, uh, still speaks and writes Cyrillic. And it says New York, Paris, Frankfurt, Berlin, Istanbul, Dubai, Almaty, Tashkent, Urumqi, Urumqi is in China, Delhi, Tehran, Bishkek, Prague, Prague, sorry, Munich, Brussels, London. I don't see something else here, but still, I don't see Moscow. <laughs> sorry, but still, it's about global connections. All right, so here is here are some results, and I don't want you to look at all of them. That would be pretty long to discuss. So I want to make a couple of points here. Um, all people, I, I interviewed all people in Dushanbe, which is the capital city, and their socioeconomic status and education, it varied a lot. But a couple of major points. What is interesting is that three-fourths, like 75% of all people were born outside of Dushanbe. So there is about, I would say that the complex entanglement of international and internal migration, they made their way to the capital city. It's about status as well, it's about social class, it's about the outcomes of their migration for many years, because they made their way, they rented houses or apartments, they, they are house owners now, so that's the real outcome of migration. What is also interesting here is that almost half of all people who I interviewed had a college degree. University graduates, can you imagine that? But it means almost nothing. It doesn't easily translate into a job or into money. So I, I invite you to look here, and you will see that um, a small share of people who I interviewed, not so small, okay, 40%, had formal employment, which means like managers, often bank clerks, something, but they were bank clerks and managers were often born in Dushanbe. So they had that opportunity in the job market. And more than a half of people were either unemployed in case of women, or they had some low-skilled, low-paid jobs. They worked as day laborers pretty often and I will speak about that later in the context of re-entry bans. Um, they could be janitors, street cleaners, in case of women, so this is about gendered structure of labor market as well in Tajikistan. And now monthly income, and you can see, right, that more than a half of people made 
from zero to $100 a month. And some people made a bit more, but only two people made more than $300 a month. And they were mainly born in Dushanbe, and they worked as like sales managers, product managers, bank clerks, something. But two people, yeah. <laughs> That's the structure of the labor market. So, so the, these are the, quick clarification, this yeah. is while they're in Dushanbe, their employment rates and their earnings. Mm -hmm. So you're interviewing, they're back in Dushanbe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're, they're all now in Dushanbe. Okay. I think except for one woman who travels there and back to Kulab. They are all Dushanbe residents now. Yeah, so that's interesting. Okay. So now I want to discuss some ethnography and present my results in the form of two vignettes and to illustrate how Tajik men and women experiences new migration laws and regulations and tell how new re-entry bans affect their social status, empowerment, and gender. So this is a story of Zinab, dictionary name, but this woman is real. She is 35 years old, and she spent over seven years in Moscow, in the capital of Russia. She had a job, she raised her only son, and she planned to give him a good education in Russia. The boy went to kindergarten and then started elementary school, and she has not returned to Tajikistan or crossed the Russian border for five years in a row. Uh, because that was pretty common for Russian migrants uh, for Tajik migrants in Russia to travel to the nearest border to get that border stamp and the new migration card. And previously, which was another surprise to me, they traveled to Ukraine, which was the closest border, but now they said and she said that her husband did not allow her to do that because there is a lot of concern among Tajik migrants as well, which I didn't know about. They are scared to travel to Ukrainian border because of the war, because of the conflict, so they know about that. All right. Um, so she confronted serious issues when finally she faced the reality of migration laws. When she came to Tajikistan to attend to a family emergency, she learned that she was banned from the entry to Russia for three years for the breach of migration laws. But throughout her seven years in Russia, she became really included in the social life of the host country. Because she worked as a kindergarten teacher, and she celebrated her son's academic achievements in school, and she had clear plans to stay in Russia, to be a Russian citizen, gradually maybe a permanent resident there. So that life came to an end when she faced again the reality of re-entry ban um, and learned that her name was in the stop list. Because at the time of research, she lived with her in-laws in Dushanbe. She worked part-time as a school teacher for less than $100 a month, and she turned all her wages over to her mother-in-law. And she was under full control of her mother-in-law and subjected to her power. She could not even move around the city without asking permission and providing details of why and where she needed to go. Her mother-in-law often called her to check her whereabouts, and she had to answer, and she regularly discussed Zinab's behavior with her husband. So Zinab kept repeating, I will leave by any means. I will not stay in Tajikistan. I will leave the very day the travel ban expires. And she said, this is a quote. She, that's about the social status, that's about her perception, I would say, of the opportunities. Um, why it is important here? Because she celebrated the new knowledge 
uh, and she really, can you imagine her expression was spoke about her, you know, my son is so incredible, he knows those things, because nobody knows that. Here in Dushanbe, he's different. So that was about social class. That's a, that was about social mobility achieved through migration, achieved through many years living in Russia. So this narrative provides an insight into the role of migration and building a new social status for women, and she celebrated her achievements as a working mother and an educator, supported her son's development and balanced work and family life. And she was successful by teaching children in the kindergarten, developing good relationship with neighbors, with children, with fellow teachers, so that's about inclusion, right? It's a pathway to inclusion in a society. Um, so women like that, um, there were also women who didn't experience the travel ban directly, but it hit them secondhand. Mm -hmm. Because their, their either husbands were banned from re-entry, or they chose to stay in Russia for the fear of experiences that ban, right? Um, so there were wives of migrants who used to travel to Russia for many years to provide for the family, and now due to also economic recession in Russia, many of those people were not able to secure stable jobs and income anymore. And in this situation, they chose to stay in Russia rather than return home for the fear of re-entry ban. And those women shared stories of their husbands. They sought to have good jobs, but they faced job insecurity. They were victims of fraud when people are not paid, when the employers do not pay them, right? All the fraud also in the gray zone of the Russian job market linked to migration. And also they had to frequently change places to look for jobs, so that was a lot of, that was a huge thing. And also those families had to balance the growing cost of living in Russia with the obligation to support, to provide for the family. And in this situation, remittances became irregular, they shrank, and wives had a really hard time. And they shared stories. Uh, previously, they enjoyed their elevated status and class achieved through migration, right? Um, and also now, that economic downturn and re-entry bans meant that women had to be the heads of the households, right? And they struggled to secure money for everyday needs and often found themselves juggling low-paid jobs, home, and children at the very same time. That was a struggle, a real struggle for them. That is also about gender expectations and the stigma, because they were in some strange social position, whether they were straw widows, right? Grass widows, sorry. That's the expression in English. Um, but they separated because they didn't really know whether their husbands, what was the reason behind their husbands not returning. They had some guesses. They thought about re-entry bans, uh, but maybe sometimes they thought about having a second wife, that's a common narrative, among the male, male migrants, so that was another social status, like not legally separated, but ambiguity, about ambiguity, I would say. All right, so that was also about the power of um, gender inequalities and the power of tradition. So those stories, those women narratives that had interrelated themes of emancipation and the loss of status as well. Um, now let's speak about males because I speak about gender effects. Uh, this is a story of Omar who's 38 years old and he spent 20 years working in Russia. And this story highlights the experiences of migration and suffering in the context of unemployment, 
and reentry bans, and inability to secure a stable income back in Tajikistan. All right, so I won't read that. I will give you a second. That's about everything. That's about family. That's about lack of opportunities and future. So that's a lot of frustration, and people are so embarrassed. That's about despair as well. I think this is an important narrative. Um, so re-entry bans hit men, male migrants, really hard. Those men used to earn in Russia like $600 to $800 at construction sites, and now they are day laborers in Dushanbe. Because of the structure of the labor market, they have no place. They are internal movers as well. Their families now live in Dushanbe, but there is no place for them in the formal labor market because they, all their skills were linked to working in Russia, and now they are, um, I don't know if you know the Tajik word, Mordikor, which means the laborer, right? They go to the specific place and they stand there all day around waiting for people to go and pick them and give them some job for a work or, or for a day or two or something, right? Okay. So now let's come to discussion. Do you have any questions about those narratives and stories? Okay. All right. So um, in those, through those stories, through those vignettes, I explored gender differences and the ways that re-entry bans affected Tajikistan's migrants. And also, we looked at the broader, I discussed the broader social and structural factors that shape low experiences for men and women. And so these results pointed changes in the social status linked to migration, and it also reflects broader changes in the patterns that define women's transnational mobility. Um, it is pretty common narrative in um, cross-national research in migration that it is empowerment of women through migration, right? Um, I think you saw that somewhere. Because women gain knowledge, resources, and more power when they work overseas. This is about increased agency. It's about new skills. It's about new social status as well. That is empowerment. Um, right? But also, when men migrate and women stay behind, that also is about agency. That is also often seen through the lens of empowerment. Right? Because women are now heads of the households. This is a different like gender role, maybe, which are not used to. So they have the power to neg negotiate their decisions often with their in-laws. Or if it is a nuclear family, they are the heads of the households. This is about decision making. This is about greater mobility and less social pressure and control, which is pretty common in Central Asia. And also, when we looked at, uh, when we studied with Viktor Abedjanian, um, Central Asian women migrants in Russia, they were pretty knowledgeable about that. They said that they valued more relaxed gender norms, and they really celebrated, and there were wonderful stories how women celebrated new sexual experience, experiences, how they navigated their lives, and how they were uh, it was good for them. Uh, they, like, that was about agency and love and everything about sex, which is not discussed in a traditional Tajik family. Sex is not, not, not discussed. So it's something new for women, for like, 
traditional, what you wish, many qualifications, uh, here to discuss sex, to discuss love, to discuss, to negotiate something in this field as well, in the field of relationship. Um, okay, uh, so transnational migration for those women and settlement in Russia was a means to break away from the tradition. Uh, and it, in Tajikistan, in many places of Central Asia, when women, I don't know if you know that, when women marry, they become in the power of in-laws, they move into the new household, and they become, uh, they are married into a new kin, so they are under control. Um, but migration creates a new dynamic here, right, of gender, power relationships, and families, and households. However, this is the point that I want to make, this, this empowerment, this is new gender, this new gender configuration is challenged what women experience reinterventions. They have to get back into those households and they have to renegotiate tradition, to renegotiate their agency and decision-making power and they are not really successful in doing that because this is the family. This is how you should navigate your way in a family in Tajikistan. Okay? All right, so let us talk about men and then have some time for questions, okay? All right. Um, now, finally, discussion about men. This changing legislation hit men in a different way because male migrants nowadays, and it has been there for many years, they make 85% of all migrants who enter Russia. So there is only 15% of women. And that makes me, them vulnerable, more vulnerable to re-enter bans. And there are lots of interrelated themes of masculinity and gender roles, social status, and precarity in men's narratives. Because my results suggest that lived experiences of the new laws challenge opportunities for men to provide, and being a provider is everything in Central Asian tradition, um, right? When they, they are banned from re-entry to Russia for three to five years, they have to stay in Tajikistan, and they have to look for the means to earn and provide for the family, which is hard to do, given the structure of the labor market and opportunities that they have, right? And those small irregular wages push families into precarity, and the social status goes down, because now they cannot provide, they cannot uh, support that status, they cannot buy, even buy good food for their children, so they really struggle, it's about suffering. In the context of broader political and law factors, it's about suffering. Okay, uh, so that's about down, down, downward economic mobility of households, and that challenges and undermines the men's normative masculine roles as providers, and that causes considerable strains in families. That's about fighting, that's about women say, where's money? And he said, Omar said, what, have, what do I have to answer? I don't have already answer because he can only be a day laborer in Dushanbe and that's almost nothing. Uh, I, had, I heard stories from Tajik man. He said, well, they hired us for, to do some earthworks for three days, which was really hard, hard physical work. Uh, and they, they paid, I think, each, each guy $10 for three days of this work for like 10 hours of work in the heat with no food, no water. So you can imagine that precarity that families and households experiences because of that. Um, and also that impacts 
clear perception of self-efficacy and impacts health and mental well-being because that's another um, interest of me how stress is being uh, embodied and what implications it has for the health of people right and it's a lot of stress here um all right and a couple of final slide, uh, slides here um that's about class mobility that would be another important conclusion here um that International migration does, it creates opportunities for class mobility, for social mobility. Uh, because households gain financial, social, and symbolic capital through migration, through that cycle of repeated moves there and back, through that patterns of transnational lives. They buy everything. Uh, if you saw maybe photographs of migrants returning home, and when I travel from Moscow, I, I really love going to airports and watch planes board into Central Asia. You cannot imagine how happy these guys are. They are mm -hmm. in bright clothes. They have huge boxes of, I don't know, plasma TV sets, or I don't know what is in there, sometimes refrigerators, and they bring gifts back home to their families, and that's everything. They're so happy, and that's a striking difference from the when you see planes arriving because they are constrained, they see police officers everywhere, and now they return home with gifts. That's symbolic, that's material, that's everything. That's the outcome of migration. Also, an important thing here is that international migration fuels rural urban migration as well, so that development of the country may be not very straightforward, but it really does that. So more and more people become urban residents in Tajikistan. And that's a huge thing because now I think I looked at the statistics like 70 to 80% of, of Tajikistan population is still rural. So they move to cities and that's an important thing. And that creates a dynamic system of mobility, both social and residential and spatial, right? Um, and now that accumulated wealth and social capital allows family to seek better jobs, housing, and Right? So that's about production of class. However, there are lots of proxies which I discussed with class mobility for the outcomes of migration. Uh, of migration. That's about laws, that's about the power of law, that's about how, if you wish, that social environment and structural factors, how they shape population mobility and social mobility of movers in Tajikistan and elsewhere. This is not the unique case, I would say, for Central Asia, it happens everywhere, in Uzbekistan, in Kyrgyzstan. Okay, no, sorry. Um, Kyrgyz guys do not face re-entry bans uh, because they are in the customs union now. And finally, let, us, let me speak about policy implications uh, because that affects re-entry bans affect a lot of people, right? 20% of regular movers, uh, they become temporarily immobile following those recent developments in the Russian migration laws. But what is important here that I looked at the report of the World Bank and it says that notwithstanding that economic growth of GDP of the country in the past decade, uh, and there was a steep decline in the poverty rate fueled by remittances in Tajikistan. But that was for a decade. However, the country failed to create enough jobs for the growing workforce. And there is structural unemployment, there are structural problems in the economics. 
And in the context of limited economic opportunities, these restrictions on transnational movement might have negative social implications for the country, the household that's about precarity and that's about economic situation, that's about poverty. It's on the rise again because the GDP per capita fell dramatically following those new laws and Russian sanctions and economic downturn. Uh, and so I would say that the Czech government and the international donors might need to consider um, doing some long-term or short-term programs and policies to create new jobs in the country. Sounds common sense, but I would say it might help. And they need to increase domestic employment and reduce the dependency on remittances of the households, because now they are really dependent on labor migration to Russia and elsewhere. And these policies, I think, they might include investments in technical, educational, education of people, right? as well as classes that will allow to master new skills applicable in the job market, especially for the vulnerable groups of youth and women. I think that's it. Thank you. A big share.